This is episode 179 of That Shakespeare Life. Our show this week is brought to you in part by our members here at That Shakespeare Life. Membership gives you unlimited access to our video streaming library full of award-winning documentaries, animated plays, virtual tours, and more all about the life of William Shakespeare. Sign up today at castingcash.com slash member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Bob Cromwell. I've done research at the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C., and independently have researched the history of flush toilets and the connection to Shakespeare's time. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. Sixteenth century is, for me, some sort of like milestone in shoemaking, and uh, introducing heel lift is one of the biggest change in uh, shoemaking. So yes, they would wear high heel, but not as we know it. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Sandals, boots, spurs, and cobbled shoes are all mentioned in Shakespeare's plays, found in works like All's Well That Ends Well, Coriolanus, and even Hamlet, where the Danish prince talks about his raised shoes. All this mention of footwear in the works of the Bard has us wondering exactly what kind of shoes William Shakespeare might have worn during his lifetime. While portraits of the Bard don't extend down to his toes to provide us with a visual record of Shakespeare's actual feet, we can explore the fashion of men's shoes in Tudor England to examine the styles, materials, and commerce of men's shoes. This week's guest is intimately familiar with what's involved in making 15th and 16th century shoes because that's exactly what he creates in his shop called NP Historical Shoes. We're delighted to welcome artisan and historical shoemaker Uri Mateen to the show this week to help Help us explore what kind of footwear Shakespeare might have had on his feet. Uri Matig is a professional historical shoemaker at NP Historical Shoes. He researches, designs, and manufactures highly authentic and original footwear, along with leather accessories using old methods and techniques exclusively from natural and sustainable materials. All of his works are either detailed replicas or inspired by existing artifacts, which can be found in archaeological museum collections around the world or are artistically depicted in manuscripts, paintings, and exposed works of art in sacral buildings. Find links to NP Historical Shoes and more of Uri's work in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Uri. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Thank you for the invitation. It's, uh, I'm very happy to be here and share my knowledge of historical shoemaking and, uh, and footwear generally. So excited to have you share it with us. When it comes to archaeological finds and shoes that survived from Shakespeare's lifetime, are 16th century men's shoes distinct from women's shoes in their appearance? Um, not really. The difference started to be roughly in 17th century, but till then, the footwear were usually unisex. So you have one type of shoe, and it was used for men, for women, for children as well. Of course, there are some 
small differences, but it's, we are talking roughly about, for example, it's maybe slightly narrower for women. Men, for example, in 16th century, second half of 16th century, had slightly higher heel, but not big difference. In A Winter's Tale, Autolycus mentions a, quote, shoe tie among a long list of his accessories. And in As You Like It, Rosalind talks about the appearance of an unkempt man, including having one's, quote, shoes untied. That comes from Act 3, Scene 2. Uri, would Tudor shoes have had fasteners like laces, ties, or buttons? Yes, definitely. Lace, ties, buckles, of course. For different period, there were some sort of favorite type of fastening for, for shoes, for footwear. In Tudor period, for the first half of 16th century, we are talking more about uh, buckles and slip-on shoes. For later, later period, for second half of uh, 16th century, it's more tie, lace. In Hamlet, Act 3, the Danish prince talks about roses on his, quote, raised shoes, end quote. And Falstaff mentions, quote, high shoes in Henry IV, Part 1. You're right, both of these references sound like what we might call high heels today. But are these references suggesting men in Tudor England wore high heels? 16th century is, for me, some sort of like milestone in shoemaking and uh, Introducing heel, heel lift, is one of the biggest change in uh, shoemaking. So, yes, they would wear high heel, but not as we know it. You know, the, the heel, a heel lift in this case is um, evolved from the heel patches and was created by, for example, three layers of uh, leather, and that was all. Later, it became a little bit more complicated, and it was... We are talking later in 17th century. It was heel lift covered in a leather or fabric. But this is 17th century. When Hamlet mentions specifically, quote, two provincial roses on my shoe, end quote, is he talking about actual embellishments sewn or stamped into the leather of his shoes? Was that common for a man's shoe to have patterns or designs in them like roses? Footwear shoes uh, in 16th century were decorated mostly by slashes, slashing. But uh, what I think this is about, it's um, decoration, which uh, was very popular in the uh, first quarter of 17th century, so beginning of 17th century. And uh, because the design of the shoe changed and were more open and there wasn't enough space for decoration, of other type, shoemakers starting to use different material, off-cut, silk, uh, ribbon, to create uh, rosettes to cover the fastening. And this was very popular at the beginning of 17th century. So I think that this is it. This, this might be it. The only mention of sandals in Shakespeare's plays comes from Hamlet when Ophelia is singing a song that includes the lyrics, quote, sandal shoon, end quote. Uri, what was the status of sandals in Elizabethan England? I know sandals as footwear far predates Shakespeare, and this reference by Ophelia suggests they were in existence during Shakespeare's lifetime, but would men in Elizabethan England have worn sandals? Yes, but... Sandals were for decades uh, typical footwear for monks and pilgrims, some sort of like symbol of poverty or repentance. So I think that in this case as well, uh, it's referring to pilgrims, monks, 
I can imagine Shakespeare running down the street in the sandals. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, would, he wouldn't have had sandals for his, for the streets of London, I guess. In Richard III, Act Five, the Duke of Gloucester says, quote, one that never in his life felt so much cold as overshoes in snow, end quote. Uri, what kind of shoe is this reference talking about? Were there snowshoes in Shakespeare's lifetime? This is a little bit tricky, actually. <laughs> there weren't shoes, like winter shoes, as we can as we imagine. Okay, there, there was a, some sort of construction where there was a used cork layer stitched between two layers of uh, sole, like insole and outer sole, and created insulation. Example from 15th century, but example as well from second half of the 16th century. This would be, we might call it winter shoes or shoes made for winter. But there is written overshoes. Overshoes is a type of footwear which uh, is known since uh, 13th century. And actually, purpose of this type of footwear is protect the shoe itself. It's actually, it was worn over the shoe. So the wearer with the shoe put the overshoe on going outside. And we have examples from 16th century as well, where, as I mentioned before, similar construction, layer of cork stitched between two layers of leather and basically creating mules going outside. Like a slip-on, it this like you would have a shoe on and then you would slip yeah, that into this exactly. overshoe. Okay. Enter, entering home, you will leave the overshoe next to the door and you are walking in your shoe inside. Really kind of a brilliant suggestion, yeah. actually. Clever. Yes, very clever. <laughs> in Julius Caesar, Act 1, Scene 1, the second commoner identifies himself by saying, quote, I am indeed, sir, a surgeon to old shoes. When they are in great danger, I recover them. As proper men as ever trod upon neat's leather have gone upon my handiwork, end quote. Uri, is this second commoner identifying himself as a shoemaker? Would someone who repairs shoes have been called a shoe surgeon? I haven't heard the term uh, shoe surgeon. I think that it might be maybe just uh, artistic expression. Identifying himself as a shoemaker, a shoemaker is a person who is making new shoes from completely new height. So it would be rather cobbler, but cobbler is not really good expression because it came in use in 18th century. Shoe doctor, shoe surgeon might be. But not definitely not shoemaker. <laughs> we'll keep those distinct. Yes, not making yeah. new shoes, but someone who is fixing old shoes. In Henry V, Fluellen says that it will, quote, serve you well to mend your shoe, end quote, which makes it sound like it was an expected activity for a man to have shoes repaired when they had worn out, as opposed to what we do today and just, oh, I have holes in my shoe, I'm going to go buy new ones. You're right. What was the process for a man who owned shoes after he bought that first pair? How long did they last? And when were they worn out enough that he did need to go find a shoemaker to make him a new pair? Like I mentioned before, 16th century is a milestone in shoemaking evolution. And everything changed rapidly in the middle of 16th century and shoes were more durable. So if you are talking um, early period, 15th century, shoe would last maybe a year, a couple of months. They would be reused, throw away. For the 16th century, they would last definitely longer. They tried to put more layer of soles on a shoe sometimes three, sometimes four. They, they figure out how, <laughs> how to do it. Regarding the 
how long till the owner buy new pair of shoes. It always depends on the on the persona, on the status in society. I have my own theory for when I'm doing living history. It's very related how we think. If you have enough money as a person, you will buy more shoes. If you have enough money and you are buying new shoes and you have old one, you will donate it to charity. And this was in that period as well. Many people, uh, like well of people, are passing down the shoes that weren't in anywhere anymore in use. There are examples of of uh, shoes which were altered in a way, like cutting on a wamp to create more space for the feet, which were slightly bigger than the previous owner's one. Cutting out uh, the cutting of the quarters to create mules. So there was always way how the Shoe basically lasts longer, passed down, reused, and this sort of thing. Would a man of Shakespeare's station have owned multiple pairs of shoes or shoes for various occasions? Or was it just the kind of thing where you had your one pair and you bought new when you needed it? Again, it depends on the on the persona, on the status. There would be commoner owning one pair of shoe. When the weather is good enough, you know, in the summer being barefoot on the on the field, town person would have probably several pairs and for different occasions. I know we would love to learn more about this topic and explore the history of Tudor shoes. Further, what are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Oh, there are not many good books on shoemaking and footwear generally, but uh, Few what I would recommend a brilliant book from Olaf Gaubitz, a Dutch archaeologist. The book's name is Stepping Through Time. Another really good book, archaeological footwear from Margita Falken, brilliant uh, archaeologist and previous curator of a shoe museum in Northampton, June Swan, and her books. Uh, I think that shoes on top of my head, uh, history of footwear in Norway, Sweden, Finland, really good references, nice pictures. Those are excellent resources for sure. Thank you for suggesting them. We'll go check out these links. I will place links to all of these resources as well as Uri's work in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you go there to find those. Uri, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Ooh. Depends if I'm cast away or on holiday. <laughs> yes, but, so that's an important <laughs> distinction. We leave it up to you. <laughs> okay. If I'm on holiday, I would probably go for Paolo Coelho, uh, The Alchemist. A really nice book. Nice reading. <laughs> yes. Uh, so if I'm cast away, I think that I would have different uh, things to do than <laughs> read the book. <laughs> yes. You'd be, a little, you'd be a little busy to read, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Oof, many things is going in my life at the moment. At the moment, we are we have started to work on order for Brussels Museum. Actually, it's uh, 16th century, first half of 16th century shoes for pairs. We are preparing our small exhibition in our atelier, exhibition of our work of shoemaking and, and shoes in history. And we are building our own uh, 
our own brand for handmade stuff and, and modern contemporary items plates from leather. That is exciting stuff coming from NP Historical Footwear and Uri. Thank you so much for being here and going over the history of Tudor shoes and what kind of shoes Shakespeare might have worn. This has been a fun conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you very much as well. For links to some of the museum exhibitions, artifacts, and paintings that show you the visual record of the 16th century shoe designs we talk about today, as well as direct links to NP Historical Shoes and Uri's work, make sure to stop by the show notes at castycash.com slash episode 179. That's castycash.com slash EP 179. If you like the history of William Shakespeare and want to get even closer to the 16th and 17th century history we talk about here on the show, then consider becoming a member of That Shakespeare Life. Members get unlimited access to our entire video streaming library, including award-winning documentary films, animated plays, virtual tours, games and recipe tutorials straight from the life of William Shakespeare, and so much more. You can also download our library of worksheets, lesson plans, activity guides, and illustrated resources like diagrams, maps, and infographics that make understanding the history of William Shakespeare easy to see in full color and all printable from our exclusive resource library. Explore all the benefits of becoming a member and sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. I'll see you inside. That's it for this week. Thank you for being here. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learned something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.